Hi there, Tyler Buckingham here, and I want to thank you for supporting Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. As part of our effort to improve our content and expand our audience, we'd love it if you could take 10 minutes and let us know more about you and how we can bring the best possible coastal content to you in the future. I promise it's quick and easy. Just go to coastalnewstoday.com to find the survey. Thank you so much. Hey guys, this is Peter Ravella, publisher of Coastal News Today and co-host of the American Shoreline Podcast with Tyler Buckingham. So I wanted to tell you, we've got some really amazing content coming up that you need to pay attention to. We're going to be screening a documentary film called Entangled, and it's done by a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who's been on ASP a couple of times, David Abel, who's a journalist with the Boston Globe. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the definitive story of the North Atlantic right whale and the lobster fishery in the Gulf of Maine in this incredibly difficult and complex coastal issue. So this film is coming up October 22nd. You should be part of it. David Abel will be in the discussion before the film. Get your tickets. Go to coastalnewstoday.com and you'll see Entangled. Get your tickets. And this is the October 22nd. It's going to be the best thing coming up this fall. The right whale is an extraordinary creature. It's really one of the wonders of the living world. But if something in our management doesn't change, the direction of the population points to zero, and that's extinction. The North Atlantic right whale is considered one of the most endangered species on the planet. This would be the first large whale in modern history that would go extinct. Eighty-five percent of the right whale population now bears scars that indicate entanglement injury. This was a big problem, and it's an urgent problem. It's a tragedy that we're losing the right whales. It's emblematic of large-scale changes that are happening on the planet. Human beings can exist without biodiversity, and this is maybe a harbinger of where we're going. We need to put as much pressure as we can on the agency to step up and take action right now. I don't think the urgency can be overstated. Human action is killing these whales, and human action has the ability to save them. Lobstermen are stewards of the sea, and they don't want to entangle anything. I sat here and listened to environmentalist after environmentalist tell me what a murderous individual I am. My opinion about the whales is fuck them. What more can we do? Eventually, they're going to die off. It's going to happen no matter what. As your governor, I will do everything I can to defend Maine's lobster industry in the face of this absurd federal overreach. Challenge is to find ways for the fishing industry and the right whales to coexist in the same waters. Noah is the fox scouting the chicken coop. You're going to be fired for being a liar and a person who works to kill off the right whale. One of the problems is that fisheries are one of the main factors that are endangering protected species. You end up with one organisation deeply conflicted with its mission.
Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Miami-Dade County, Tyler, one of the premier urban areas on the American Shoreline. Can we say that? I think I would agree. I think so. You know, we got New York City. You got great American cities on the shore, but Miami-Dade, uh, fabulous, well-known worldwide. We're going to talk about that today, and we're going to be talking particularly about the water around Miami, the city of Miami and Miami-Dade County, Biscayne Bay. And we've got a really cool guest to talk about that show, so I'm looking forward to it. Me too. You know, I was uh, out in this neck of the woods not long ago, sailing around, experiencing uh, Biscayne Bay by water. And it was beautiful, and I was struck uh, being on the boat, having never been to that part of the world before, just how much, how huge the city of Miami is looming over the sea. I mean, it just goes from flat ocean to a pile of concrete city. It is really impressive and presents, you know, a lot of the problems we see on the American shoreline with how to manage all of those people, all of those people who want to use the water, who value, obviously, the beauty and, you know, amenity that is the Miami lifestyle of this uh, coastal area. Uh, with managing it and keeping it beautiful, yeah, so uh, it is there. a it is a uh, constant back and forth, and it is I think fair to say it's kind of the story of South Florida right now how the water is being managed. Well, and that's why I'm so happy we have on the show today Jim Marley and uh, Murley, who is the Chief Resilience Officer from Miami Dade. Marley and is kind of like a, a it's a Murley, I think. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, but they're 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 really making some important progress uh, on the issue. So I'm really uh, looking forward to talking to Jim. Me too. Uh, But before we get into it, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Jim, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast and take 
thanks for taking time out of your busy day to talk to us and the listeners around the country and actually around the world. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be have the invitation and, and have the time to talk about this game day. Well, let's introduce our audience. I think, as I said, Miami Miami is certainly a well-known city around the world, but I don't think people really know what, what the waterways are around that city. Uh, Biscayne Bay, can you introduce our audience just to the geography and the physical area that we're going to be talking about today, Biscayne Bay? Of course. Well, uh, if you look at a, the map of Florida, you know, a peninsula surrounded by water, uh, uh, Biscayne Bay occupies the lower southeastern corner, and it is a uh, you know natural uh, estuary um, that historically had a lot of freshwater flow into it. Uh, you pro- probably some of the listeners may know that the central part of South Florida uh, is the what we call the American Everglades. It's a huge freshwater body, and uh, historically flowed from Lake Okeechobee south into the as far down into the Florida Keys. And much of that fresh water naturally flowed to the east and into uh, Biscayne Bay. There are even historical records of, of uh, sailing ships that would come into the bay to collect fresh water from, uh, from the water welling up uh, out of the ground. Wow. Uh, that's how plentiful. And, and it's today we still, our, our unique geology uh, of limestone uh, karst limestone means that water filters through it back and forth, and uh, which was one of the reasons that the estuary was there because it had that uh, unique mix of salt and, and fresh water. Uh, it was a place that um, was occupied early uh, because it included the uh, Miami River, which was a navigable river that left the bay and provided uh, historic a route for uh, Native Americans and others in, back into the Everglades. Uh, and, it, and it settled, like uh, much of Florida, uh, late in, in, our, in the history, uh, especially if you think about the movement west for, uh, for settlement. Uh, and it, it happened when um, a railroad was built south from Jacksonville by Henry Flagler, uh, almost the turn of the 20th century. And th- that became the modern history of uh, of, of the city of Miami and the surrounding area, which we now know as Miami-Dade County. Uh, Jim, would you talk a little bit about, the, the, I love this historical perspective here, but what, in addition to the, the waterway and the navigable channel, um, when we're talking about the turn of the century and, you know, post-Native uh, occupation, we're, we're definitely talking about Western expansion, American expansion, and popular, you know, migration down there. What was was the water as much of a feature as it is today? When I think of Miami, I mean, I can't, I can't help but think of a beach or a key or a boat. Uh, was that part yes. of the draw back yes, then as it, well? It it was. It was probably even a more distinct feature over a larger landmass because. You know, we're in a tropical uh, latitude, and that means we're, we get, on average, 60 inches of rain a year. So uh, that keeps us pretty uh, inundated uh, without, you know, and then there are the storms, because we're also um, uh, part of the, uh, the hurricane season. We could easily get a, an intense storm along with the hurricane. So the water... Uh, presented itself uh, as a both a great amenity and an obstacle to further urban development. So our 
uh, our predecessors here built a canal system to drain the fresh water uh, off the land and to the and to the bay and also allowed them to use the uh, oil from the dredging to build up the land next to it so they in classic uh, american real estate fashion they created waterfront uh, along those canals and then along the bayfront uh, you know we went through our period of time where there was uh, land was filled to provide for water access and uh, even islands uh, were were completely made in the middle of the bay by uh, building a bulkhead and then dredging up the uh, bay bottom and depositing it within the bulkhead and soon you had an island uh, with waterfront lots so we went th- through those boom periods uh, where um, you know that's that that was a a custom way of dealing with both the flooding that came from those heavy rain events and providing more stable, higher ground for urban development. Man, we, 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 we Jim, we sure do love a, a steam shovel or a backhoe when yeah. it comes to, we like to move the dirt around, don't we? At we what, do. At what point, Jim, did, I mean, I'm just curious now in yes. this historical kind of progression from kind of a sparsely, uh, populated urban area, and then this this growth that I saw uh, yes. anchored out there in uh, Biscayne Bay, looking at the city. I mean, it was it on was, your recent trip. On my recent trip, yeah, yeah, I I was floored at how big the city was, and I'm wondering, like, back into this historical lens, at what point did people start to uh, confront the the negative implications, the externalities of this kind of development. I mean, was it immediately, I mean, obviously this is such a rich estuary, a rich system with, with the keys. Um, you know, there's a lot there to be damaged. <laughs> uh, and, and there's a lot, you know, it's a long fuse, I guess you could say, but I'm just curious at what point did people start to speak up and say, Hey, you know, uh, this is having implications with our, our, this valued, part of our landscape or waterscape as it were. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think because our population growth percentage wise uh, increased at certain times dramatically, especially in the twenties, actually in absolute numbers, it still was really simply modest and the amount of land available was huge. Right. Uh, I would say what happened is uh, during world war two, uh, much of Florida was a training area uh, for all all branches of the military, and that was certainly true of, of uh, Southeast Florida. Many of our commercial airports today are former military airports built during the war, and uh, the uh, there were submarine defenses. We had a whole base for for uh, uh, dirigibles or you know uh, lighter than air um, planes. It was all about the war, and then after the war, uh, many of the soldiers that trained here came back to live. So that the boom really started in the 60s, 50s and 60s, excuse me. And by the 70s, in many, as is the case around the entire country, the environmental uh, consequences sort of came home to roost. And you saw a reaction of government uh, to starting to protect the things that, that uh, had brought people, our beaches, uh, the, the Everglades themselves. Um, and we... You know, some of those practices that I described, especially filling entire uh, islands, uh, were essentially stopped. And they and they 
they're 100% stopped now. You don't see any of that happening. Uh, so then we, we continued to grow both in absolute numbers and in a, in a dramatic fashion. And that's the history of Florida. You know, we're now the third largest state uh, and uh, we are the largest county in Florida. So I think the, uh, we, we parallel that national um, conscious building around the environment, uh, around our coasts, our beaches, and uh, air quality. We, we uh, have uh, been very blessed because of our prevailing winds off the ocean and no, uh, no vertical mountain ranges. You know, our geology is very flat. Uh, you, you, don't get, um, you don't get pollution in the classic sense if you think of L.A. or other places. That like just a smog blanket up. just over yeah, the... Yeah, so it's, it's not that our cars don't, you know, historically emit uh, all those things that, that can create that smog. It's just, it's like a vacuum cleaner. It's just gone within 24 hours. So we've never had a dramatic air quality issue to confront uh, and operate as a constraint. Uh, but water has been the defining feature. Water quality, water quantity, water management, uh, and dealing with storm events, you know, that dramatically change um uh, levels of water for a short period of time. Mm. And frankly, the reason my, I, my job exists, the my title of my job as chief resilience officer is a continued recognition that with the uh, warming of the ocean, this, we're going to have sea level rise. So again, water's relationship to the land uh, continues to be a defining feature of Southeast Florida. Mm. Okay. So, so for the audience out there, Biscayne Bay, it's about 35 miles long eight miles wide, something like that. So we're talking about, it's not a huge water area, Biscayne Bay. And sitting next to the bay, as you said, Tyler, is this phenomenal city. Uh, the Miami-Dade population, I think, uh, Jim, you mentioned, I think in the pre-show, was was about what is 2.8 million people in the county, Miami-Dade County, with about 500,000 in the population of the city. Major, major urban area on, the, on, on a fragile and beautiful bay. Um, with this unique geology of freshwater groundwater inflow. What a fascinating place. And, and uh, since the, I was Googling up the Miami-Dade uh, uh, County uh, Biscayne Bay Management Plan before the show, and I found the 1981 Biscayne right. Bay Management Plan for Miami-Dade County. So that consciousness you talked about from the 1970s emerged fairly quickly with a management plan. Give them a decade, they got a report. That's pretty good. You know, they had a Biscayne Bay Management Plan in 1981. And, uh, and the, let's talk about the management of this bay system and the attempts to do it. Uh, I know that at the present day that there is a Biscayne Bay uh, task force. There are new government structures being considered uh, to improve the management of the bay yes. but but take us a little bit down the path of course from the yeah, 1980s what the, what is what how is, did we get here how did we get well, here me, and has anything good just, happened uh, jim right yeah and there were some you know uh, good things and bad things that happened along the way and and uh, but just to amplify your description of the bay which was accurate um, we think of the bay as the is the southern part of the bay, the middle bay, and the north bay, mm -hmm. and and all interconnected. But some of the features that have developed there uh, have are defined as we go forward. Um, and if starting with the southern part of the bay, which is fairly open to the Atlantic Ocean, there's not a continuous uh, barrier island chain. 
between the mainland and the ocean. Uh, but that part of the overall Biscayne Bay is now Biscayne National Park. Uh, and okay. and uh, along the way to becoming a national park, it was a national monument. And because that area, uh, like all national parks, is now under the responsibility of the Department of Interior, we as a local government, uh, we work very closely with them uh, in, a ma- in managing that part of the bay. And they have a management plan for Biscayne National Park. It's one of the few national parks that is over 90% of its land area within its boundaries designed by Congress is water. Okay. So you can picture uh, that being a major feature because in national parks, you know, there's a great emphasis on preservation. And uh, while we allow fishing, uh, the Park Service allows fishing and other recreational activities, uh, the shoreline is also... There's a buffer shoreline owned by the national government. So as you get into the middle part of the bay, uh, that now is, is uh, where the uh, port of Miami uh, occupies a uh, on an island, man-made, a long government cut, man-made, which is the entrance from the ocean uh, out three miles into uh, the port facility. Okay. The port of Miami is the largest cruise ship port in the world, so and also cargo. So there's an immense amount of commercial activity in that central bay. The north part of the bay narrows dramatically, uh, and therefore there's flushing issues and other things that aren't a problem in the south part of the bay. Okay. And it's probably the most historically the most urbanized. So looking at hmm. that entire bay with those different kinds of issues, uh, we've had ups- we've had starts and stops trying to get a uh, and maintain a continuous management uh, organizational structure and a plan uh, and investment funding uh, to keep the priorities moving forward. Okay. And me... yes, we had an effort in 1980, and it was successful for a period of time, but then uh, some things happened that we just lost sight. And, uh, you know, we that's the reason that the county commission created the uh, Biscayne Bay Task Force that I served on was to regroup let's get a sustainable uh, governance structure in place we know a lot of the problems but we really need to coordinate and partner with people to solve them got it so uh in when was the task force formed uh, let me see it would have been the summer of 2019 wow so very recently yes yeah and we were we had a time limit okay to, so uh, so that that's interesting. So, and you know, Tyler, when we talked about, we've interviewed people from around the country on the shoreline, and we've done a couple of shows on Chesapeake Bay management, which is incredibly complicated, yeah. multiple states, huge watershed, very complicated. It's a nutrient inflow. EPA, primarily. Superfund, like long history of yeah. Fishery, all of it, yeah. yeah. Galveston Bay and the National yeah. Estuary Programs. I mean, there's there the, these these estuarine areas are sensitive, incredibly valuable for lots of reasons, uh, and they're a challenge to manage because of the complexity of the jurisdictional overlaps and who's running what and how the problems arise. But Jim, in this estuary of Biscayne Bay. Uh, um, in doing some research in the background, it seems to be that the, and tell me if this is the main problems that the task force was designed uh, to tackle, but declining water quality, as you would expect in an urban area, with a lot of runoff and 
sewage treatment issues, and but water quality, number one. Maybe two, this freshwater inflow issue, which is fundamental to all estuaries. The relationship, the salinity gradient in an estuary is critical. Uh, and then some of the shoreline damage. Is, is, is that a good summary, Jim, of the major issue areas that the task force was asked to investigate? Uh, yes. I mean, you know, generally speaking, like all water bodies uh, near a large, uh, heavily urbanized area, a non-point source runoff is always a, a struggle to deal with. Um, and put uh, marine debris into that mix also. Mm. And, and you have uh, essentially the, the canals that were dug for a single purpose of draining the water off the land and getting it out the tide. And then they didn't worry about it at the time that that particular engineering activity was taking place. Uh, all had all sorts of unintended consequences. They're obviously pathways for the stormwater uh, runoff to get to the bay quicker than, uh, you know, without having any kind of filtering. Right. Uh, marine debris is collected, uh, you know, trash and other things, and, and they move quickly because they're all, the, the canals are tidally influenced. So they rise and fall and, uh, and, and they, and so stuff is, and they also became pathways for salt water to move inland. And 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 threaten our well fields. So we had to move our well fields far to the west and build gates on the canals to prevent the salt water from intruding. So you can see the pro the issue became much more complicated than just draining the water off the land. But they are today uh, still a, a primary part of our of our water system, uh, and we're constantly uh, adjusting them and um, making the changes that we think make them uh, continue to function in the future. But the their water quality uh, from uh, even agricultural activity, which we have in the southern part of the county, and the urban activity, uh, the flushing uh, of salt and fresh, fresh salt water. Uh, and then the, the bay water itself is, is warming uh, relative to the, you know, the, the warming of the oceans in general but especially in the North Bay, where the bay is relatively shallow, you can get a, you can get extreme changes in temperature. And as recently as a couple of weeks ago, where you know we had a, a, a fish die off because of lack of, lack of oxygen. So these things these are not uh, our experience in other bays and estuaries around the country, and especially in Florida. So uh, you know we're able to talk to our our peers and other communities and find out what they're doing and and. Those are the kinds of things that we brought, brought together with the task force. Yeah, I, I want to talk, uh, Jim, a little bit about the talking about your peers uh, throughout, certainly throughout the state of Florida. Uh, when this show comes out, this will be our second show in a row on ASPN uh, dealing with Florida water issues. So we're, we got a little back-to-back uh, yeah. -back action here. And um, one of the things that I think really that came up in this uh, Coastal Conundrum show that hopefully everyone's going to go back and listen to now. Bill O'Byrne. If you haven't already uh, done so, is that uh, there in the recent history of the state of Florida, uh, the water water issues were like top of mind uh, in the gubernatorial election. And there were, Peter, we covered it on Coastal News Today. Yeah, there Ron were some DeSantis. serious issues with the 
with blue green algae and water. I mean, we're talking about water quality issue. So I'm curious to know, Jim, was the creation of the task force? Do you think it was? Is it fair to like link that into that era of Florida politics that we saw over the past few seasons, summers in particular, where? You know, Peter, we were out there in Minnesota Key, man, yeah. and we experienced we experienced uh, some blue green algae, some red yeah. tide. Yeah, yeah, we did near shore toxic, um, and it yeah. was and it was the talk of the town. It's, it was truly on everyone's mind. A- absolutely, uh, I think that keyed up our local officials. It reinforced um, local uh, situations. Uh, our governor, current governor, Governor DeSantis, came into office a couple of years ago, and he prioritized water quality and water as a major issue and um, made some pretty big commitments uh, that he's been following through on. A lot had to do with Everglades. A lot had to do with algae. He he created at the state level a blue-green algae task force. Uh, And there's also red tide. Red tide typically is a Gulf of Mexico issue. It's not uh, impossible for us to see it, but we see it very rarely on the East Coast. Got it. Uh, and the Gulf is for uh, for a much larger area going out into the Gulf uh, is more shallow than the uh, East Coast, the Atlantic side. And not being a you know not being a scientist, they just experience the those issues in a greater degree than we do. But we are not e- exempt from them, and certainly we know they're happening, and ha- that heightens our need to address uh, preventative measures. Okay. Well, I'm, I do want to talk about the task force, but I want to ask you kind of along the line of Tyler's question about the origin the motivation for the task force being tied to uh, the rise of water quality issues, concerns around the state. More recently, DeSantis's pushed for responsible action. Uh, but here's what I like about talking to folks in Florida when it comes to issues like this is we don't have to tiptoe around climate change when you talk about people to talk about uh, things in Florida, uh, regardless of party, uh, Republicans in, in Florida recognize sea level rise. They can talk about it. They build it into their planning. Uh, increasing surface water temperatures is an allowed discussion. It's not gee whiz, it's a hoax. Uh, in your work as a resilience officer from Miami-Dade and as a member of the Biscayne Bay Task Force, is there any hesitation to acknowledge the contributing factors of climate change into these issues? I mean, obviously, that doesn't cover all of the concerns the task force is dealing with. But can you talk a little bit about how climate well, change is understood? Accurate. You know, for the last decade, um, the Miami-Dade County has partnered with its neighboring counties um, to the north. It's Palm Beach and, and Broward County, where Fort Lauderdale is, and then to our neighbor to the south, Monroe County, is the Florida Keys. And the four counties have done a collaboration we call the uh, Southeast Florida Climate Change Compact, Compact for short. And we have uh, uh, really focused on these issues of uh, what, what's, what, are, what are causing the global change and, you know, being um, aware of the things that we can do to try to minimize greenhouse gases. But probably more importantly, I really uh, focus on adaptation to what uh, the change is happening uh, that we can see. We're, we are uh, right now, and um, next weekend and the weekend after, uh, we'll be experiencing the highest of our king tides uh, during the year. And that means our regular tidal uh, fluctuation could have a, 
an augmented two or three foot of tide on top of it. Wow. Um, yeah. Because, because of course, the tides are the Earth, Moon, and the Sun. But in addition to that, you know, the rise in the ocean and other things going on means that people along our shoreline for this, we know exactly, you know, we know the, we, the, the, the time it's going to happen. They could literally on a sunny day see the seawater coming up through the drainage system and flooding their streets. Yeah, into the neighborhoods and, of Miami Day. Yeah, that's that sunny day or nuisance flooding. Yeah. And, of course, all of our local governments are intervening to try to prevent that. Uh, and we can, but in the short run, we, but in the long run, it's just a, you know, a canary in a coal mine for what's going to happen as the sea rises and affects different things. Hmm. I like that. I like, you know, reality, I like to say, is a persistent teacher and one of the best in the, in the ways to understand the world. Uh, when water is coming up through the drains and into and flooding streets yeah. on a clear deep blue day, you think, gee whiz, something's happening. That reality brings to you uh, a, a certain appreciation of, of the facts. And uh, I do think that's puts Miami and puts uh, Florida kind of at the forefront of, of climate change adaptation thinking in the U.S. I think Louisiana, another state that suffers just, direct. Yeah. I'm just going to add on to this that I think yeah. Florida is the botanist state in the union i know like rhode island there's some new england states that would you know seattle's got a killer boating community but i tell you south south florida yeah miami fort lauderdale is on another level ladies it and is gentlemen. well the fort lauderdale boat show is internationally yeah. famous oh, absolutely. i mean okay, that's where you and go these, and but the the use of the what i'm getting at is we talk about this peter when you're on the water, it really, you are exposed to, for sure, if you're sitting at home in your apartment and you look down the, you know, through the window and you see water coming up through the storm drain, that's going to get your attention. I don't care yeah. who you are. But a lot of these people out there, and we talked to, you know, Terry Gibson, you know, they're, they're surfers, they're stand-up paddleboarders, they bring their kids to the beach. Yeah, Waterman. This is part of the... Florida lifestyle. It is. And when it starts to get uh, bad, for lack of a better word, it starts to get impacted by X, Y, or Z, whether it's water quality, whether it's the you can't breathe because there's a, a red tide, whether it's because the, the conditions are just, it's the water's too hot. It's not yeah. comfortable. It's not fun. I just think it, it lands really hard in Florida, it's particularly in South Florida, where it's just... Yeah. Absolutely, a part of the the lifestyle. People engaged, and yeah, yeah. Well, uh, boating is huge. Um, just during this last six months, when we in the higher country in the world have been trying to understand how to continue our lives when we're in the middle of a COVID, uh, it's it's interesting that one of the uh, safe ways for families to uh, recreate is literally get in their boats and go out on the water. We call it saltwater distancing. Hmm. And, yeah. it, it, you know, it, 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 there's risk. There's always risk, but they're outdoors. Uh, the, the advice, of course, is don't do it with people you don't know, but your family that you've been uh, uh, staying at home with. But it gave people an opportunity to have some relief uh, from basically the close down that was going on in the community. So... It, it it renders so many amenities uh, and it is reason so many people choose to live here that when it's threatened by these other things we've been talking about, 
Uh, you get an immediate uh, a community response is pretty pretty quick. You know, it occurs to me that the uh, that that saltwater distancing is kind of an adaptive <laughs> evolution socially. That is for COVID. You know, I I don't know if yeah. that falls within the purview of your your CRO. Uh, you know, kind of bailiwick, but you know, truly, you need. Uh, it's it, it was an ad- adaptation. Where's a safe place where I can be outside with her family? We uh, I used to have a sailboat actually that I sold at the beginning of COVID, and the 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 gentleman that purchased it was thinking exactly that he wanted to take his family out on on the bay and do it safely. Uh-huh. So he got a boat. Yeah. Well, let's talk about so July uh, 2019, this task force gets formed. This is a, a new effort to respond to the problems in Biscayne Bay. Uh, can you briefly give us a sense of who sits on this task force? Yes, the, the uh, county commission uh, asked two county officials uh, to sit, myself, uh, chief resilience officer, and our chief uh, environmental uh, director. He's officially the director of the Department of Environmental Resources Management, or DERM. So, uh, and we were joined by seven citizens appointed by the county commission. They had uh, diverse backgrounds, scientists, business people, uh, and uh, they, uh, we, we gathered information. We took testimony uh, about two thirds of the way through. We, we, uh, we've shifted to Zoom calls <laughs> because that was the yeah. only way we could meet. And uh, we were um, uh, we we took advantage of places like Sarasota and uh, Indian River Lagoon to the north, Sarasota and and Tampa Bay on the west coast, which had engaged uh, with the federal government, the Environmental Protection Agency's National Estuary Program. Yeah, Uh, we have not done that in Biscayne Bay, so we wanted to evaluate that as an option. Uh, We know it's something that takes federal government uh, action, but we wanted to figure out in the process of doing our work, is that something we might want to pursue? Uh, And then we we felt our job was to look back on those reports. Why had they not uh, sustained themselves? Why had the plans that you found uh, not been more actively followed? And to, uh, to address that with a governance structure and then the uh, prioritization of the issues as we understood them, so that there okay. could be they could get going right away. Well, all right, let's talk. Let's dip into a few of those because I think that's interesting. So you've got a committee of a task force of two county leaders, yourself and the uh, the head of Durham, and seven citizen representatives. Very pretty small group. Uh, the charge is to look at the past history of the planning processes, the attempts to protect and improve Biscayne Bay, see what went on. Tell us what you found out. Why didn't previous efforts to respond to the problems in Biscayne Bay work in your assessment? What did you learn when you looked back over the history of attempts to address the issues in the Bay? Well, I, th- I think it was that um, some of the uh, administrative uh, structures that have been created um, just didn't, uh, there hadn't been enough forethought about how they would operate uh, moving forward and the funding they would need and, uh, you know, the kind of nitty gritty stuff. 
that you need to sustain an effort within a county government. And of course, over the last 20 years, we, like many places, have gone through recessions. Uh, there have had to be reductions in both the, the number of employees and the, the county budget. And sometimes those uh, institutions took a hit along the way and then didn't recover when think, when the, everything got better. Okay, so, so we, re- we resources. We look at that, yeah, and, and we needed to realize that it wasn't just the county. We had to have municipal representatives because we have 34 cities, probably 20 of which are directly on the uh, on the bay. I mentioned previously we have a national park. Uh, we have a state-created aquatic preserve, which is a form of protecting the, uh, especially the the bay bottoms, which are uh, the submerged lands in Florida, unless otherwise. Uh, uh, provide uh, deeded to some entity are owned by the state of Florida uh, for the benefit of all of our citizens. So, and that's true for most of the submerged lands, the bottoms of Biscayne Bay are the jurisdiction of the state government. And they had at some point uh, designated it aquatic reserve. So there was okay. a small staff. That, so you got to get all the players together yeah. and, and bring their resources and their, uh, acknowledge responsibilities uh, and then uh, move that in a coordinated way uh, moving forward and make sure it's funded sufficiently. Got it. So, and you know, that, that challenge, uh, Jim, I think is not uncommon on the American shoreline with multiple jurisdictions involved right. in creations of uh, cross-jurisdictional problems really are not easy to handle because who gets to decide and how do you get everybody contributing and moving in the same direction? Big problem. And, you know, it's important to keep in mind that Miami-Dade is a local government entity, and uh, local governments have to do a lot of things. You know, you're talking about streets and roads and parking and sheriffs and deputies and police and fire and hospitals. I mean, local governments are have a lot to do. And, do. and finding a way to, to carve out a persistent, focused effort on Biscayne Bay or on these complex resource issues is not easy. And it's my understanding that one of the things that the task force recommends here, I think maybe the key recommendation, is that the county create the Biscayne Bay Water Management Board, a directed, focused entity that can handle this problem long term and be dedicated to the cause. Is that a fair description? And tell us about this idea of the Biscayne Bay Water Management Board. Well, yes, I think you accurately described the, uh, the goal of the, of the board and, uh, you know, trying to get a representative number uh, at the same time, a manageable number uh, is always the difficulty because you can identify yeah. numerous interests. So we came down with our, our best uh, balance, uh, we being the task force making the recommendation. The recommendation has to be implemented by the county commission. Right. But our we're, recommendation we're not there was, yet, but yeah, but, but we we found a very favorable reception by the county commission, so I think we're on our way. So we have we decided to actually put three county commissioners and three representatives of our cities, total of six, on the water man the water uh, shed management board. Okay. So there would be. Uh, direct report back to the to the elected bodies from actual members, not appointees, not staff members, but the elected okay. members themselves, mm-hmm. the people that control the budgets. Mm-hmm. 
So we've put, uh, so that totaled six. And then we uh, recommended to the commission they appoint five uh, people representing uh, the other uh, intergovernmental entities that had shared jurisdiction, uh, uh, for example, the National Park on the Bay. And together, those 11 people would, hmm. would form the management board. Okay. They alone don't have any independent authority. They don't have any taxing authority. Well, that's but, what I wanted to ask you. Next. Yeah, but they but they have significant <laughs> responsibility to coordinate among themselves. Okay. And to be sure that the resources they have are leveraged. Okay. Uh, together. So, Jim, and I wanted to ask you that because this is when you're creating these management institutions, and that's what this is going to be, this uh, Biscayne Bay Water Management Board. Six local government folks. I think it's great to have them directly connected to the state, the, you know, the governmental entities, the counties and cities, and then these five ancillary or stakeholder representatives. It's a, got a manageable size. But anytime you create these things, the two questions I always have is, number one, do they have any money? And number two, do they have any power? And I think you've said the answer to that is they don't have independent taxing power and they don't have regulatory power. It doesn't sound like. Can you explain to me what their power is? Well, I think their power is is the the ability in the world we live in today to to be the voice uh, of the Bay, to, to be transparent, to provide immediate information on what's going on. Uh, and to, um, if you will, uh, uh, be able to point out where we're, we're not holding up, where we need to do more in a particular way. And, you know, maybe that actually means bringing the attention of one of the authorities on the Bay that, uh, the problem where the problem exists, but um, you know what happened on our bay. Sometimes incidents happen, and and there's a lot of finger pointing. Nobody really can say what's what's happening, and the citizens are outraged when that happens. They want accountability. They want to go to a pl- one place, and and where science is driving the process, uh, where there is uh, not only is there the board, but our we also recommended that the there be a chief bay officer who is the coordinating individual uh, who's full time because the board is basically people who have other jobs. But the chief bay officer is 100 uh, percent focused on this coordination yeah. effort among the entities okay. on the board and outside. So let me see if I can fill in a little bit of the detail. It's a coordinating group, and coordinating groups are important. Uh, this is a multi-jurisdictional problem, getting the people sitting at the table, regular schedule, chief bay officer. We're going to focus as a group of people. And coordinate. And we're going to coordinate together, and we're not going to miss what's going on. It's going to be science-driven. That makes sense to me. And there are regulatory tools in every state and certainly in Miami-Dade there's the Florida Department of Environmental Protection there's the US EPA there's all sorts of governing regulatory structures that deal with water type issues so maybe you don't need it but I got to tell you Jim I'm you're going to have to going to convince me a little bit here um why is this particular structure are you optim first of all I on a scale of one to 10, what's the condition of the bay? And do you think the creation of the board can make a meaningful difference in the actual condition in the water? Well, the condition of the bay, you know, it's a, 
it, it, it certainly varies depending on a lot of other Sorry, factors. That's a really but I would generally question. say it's probably, you know, overall the bay is probably a, a, a six. Okay. But the northern part of the bay is probably a three. Yeah. And the south part of the bay is probably an eight. Okay. So, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and, and that's attributed a little again to the conditions and uh, one being a national park, et cetera. Yeah. But uh, they can change. You know, those numbers, which, you know, our, our estimates could could be varied by events. So, um, look, one of the hardest things in government, and I'm a, a practitioner of, of uh, public administration and policy, is for entities to cede power. Yeah. And if 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 you take if you leave everybody in place with all the authority they have, and you create a new entity and give it some power, uh, it will not necessarily uh, be, become able to keep those other entities uh, from doing what they believe is their responsibility to quote the voters, uh, notwithstanding the new entity. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a, it's a. First of all, we think you have to start someplace and build the confidence both of the parties that are out there today with the responsibility, the citizens and the people at state and federal government that we will be asking for additional funds from, uh, that this can work. If it if it indicates that, you know, we didn't get it quite right, which wouldn't surprise me, then you, you have to go back in and make some adjustments. But we needed a place to start and we needed to, you know, have a confidence level uh, of the recommendations. And that I can say, uh, I'm very pleased that the county commission uh, has unanimously adopted the report. Uh, they declared that some of this is, you know, more to draw attention, but they declared a state of emergency on the bay. Uh, they are, they're, they're moving forward. And I hope that can be sustained uh, because that's, you know, the task force is, is done. We are disbanded. I'm back doing my regular job as chief resilience officer, but I'm confident that we have a, a good opportunity, uh, a high probability that this structure will move forward and, and we can uh, adjust it. Well, I applaud the effort and I think I completely agree about the starting point. And what I'm reminded of, um, I'm reminded of two things actually out from an example from the West coast. But, uh, one is that, um, that group in the San Francisco Bay that started off as merely a coordinating group and then eventually got taxing power from the state of California to do a parcel tax on every yeah. single parcel around the Bay yep. of San Francisco. That included multiple counties. Yeah. And it, correct. it began with the realization that the Bay needed to be managed itself and that the, the you know, old political boundary lines just didn't reflect it. And the other example, Peter, that is less further, less far along in terms of getting the money power is the Beacon Group in uh, Ventura and Santa Barbara counties in California, which is also a regional joint powers authority uh, intended to manage beach erosion and kind of coastal issues. But they don't have any money. So they, they've got when they want to do a project, which they do, they have a list of priorities and things that they want to do. They've got to go and write a grant and, and try to get somebody else to pay for it. Yeah. Um, maybe the member, you know, there's local governments and county governments that are a part of the Beacon Group. But maybe one of them will step up and, and chip in some money. They, they put in a little money for the they have an executive director kind of thing. 
But it reminds me, Jim, of what you're talking about here. And I think that what, you know, ultimately will happen is that there will be actual management demands that will need to be made. And those things will cost money. And then will come the, the question of how are we going to pay for it? And but that's another question. And that's like, I think I think that's yeah. like a part of the evolution of thought. First, you start off with sizing it up, figuring out who the... And this is a social problem, as Jim points out. This is a yeah. this is a policy social issue. We have to come together regionally, in this case, around the Biscayne Bay area, all of the different groups, all of the different stakeholders, assess what all the problems are, come to come to agree, wow, you know, I, I didn't think that that was a big problem myself, but for, for this other stakeholder group, it's a really big all right, issue. All right. Now, what, do you I'm, disagree with this? Well, I'm, I'm just saying, and what you're talking about is the San Francisco Bay Conservation and Development Commission, uh, which is really a great regional organization to cite. I think that's a really good example, and you're quite right. They have, uh, they're beyond the, just mere coordination, uh, including this taxing Didn't power. start that way. Didn't start that way. So, but here, it's Jim, you said that, you know, the realization of the impacts followed the national trend on environmental awareness in the 1970s, Clean Water Act 72 and the Clean Air Act in 72. Uh, in 1981, the first attempt at a um, Biscayne Bay management plan, I, I'm going to just say that's 40 years ago. You know, 1980. And and we're at the point now where, and I don't mean to be, I'm not trying to, I don't know enough about how this process worked, Jim, so I don't want to jump to conclusions. But the creation of the Biscayne Bay Water Management Board sounds like a great first step. It sounds like there's, and I'm going to ask this as a question of FTE. Uh, we're, I, I have a lot of respect for the folks who work in government and do the hard work of these issues. And, and I'm not a uh, don't look down on it in any way, shape or form. Well, but I'm curious, uh, the budget for the new board, how many FTE are there? We know there's a Bay officer now. That's a top top gun who's got a direct line to the county commissioners and and the decision makers in the region. Uh, what other staff do you anticipate there will be? Upon the receipt of the task force report, the mayor immediately asked uh, for a budget amendment uh, for a budget that was almost ready to go into uh, play on October 1st uh, and created the full-time position of chief bay officer reporting to him and also a support person and directed the uh, environmental regulatory management department and my office uh, both to provide additional support to that uh, new activity. So, uh, you know, there, that Bay officer, uh, and much, frankly, much the way I am appointed by the mayor to coordinate the resilience activities for the county. Uh, I have a, a, a fairly good sized office, but I feel like I'm there to coordinate an entire county government, not just my office. Right. So. I think the Bay officer uh, and the management board will have available to them uh, the, the immense resources of the county and many of the other collaborating agencies. So, yes, you can enumerate the, the exact budget of those two employees, but you have to put that in the context of the others who will be working with them. 100 percent. And, and I, I really do appreciate that design. Uh, when I was the director, one of the directors at the Texas Coastal Management Program, we had a small coordinating staff, but what we were doing was working with a broad array right. of agency experts to tackle coastal problems. We didn't recreate an entire new staff. There's already a lot of 
folks working hard on water quality issues in 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 Miami-Dade County and other land management and the issues associated. So I I think that that structure the, the notion that you need a bunch of new staff and a bunch of new enforcement power doesn't necessarily hold true. But I do want to ask, you know, someone who is, how long have you been with Miami-Dade or how long have you been in the region? I think it's been a while, hasn't it, Jim? You've been down there some time. I have been in the position I'm in in county government for a little over five years. I've been in southeast Florida uh, for almost 25 years. And then I spent time in Tallahassee. Great. Interesting enough with the Coastal Zone Management Program. Ah, oh, cool. We're a networked program here in Texas. I think it, it Florida is yeah. similar. Florida the same way, yeah. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty familiar, uh, and I certainly, you know, there, there's a vast variety of, of uh, NEP programs, special things like BCDC, uh, uh, the San Francisco Bay mm-hmm. Conservation yep. Development, the whole thing that was arranged for Chesapeake Bay. Yep. Some of those are very customized. Some of them are part of, you know, broader networks like the National Estuarine Program. Uh, and then NOAA has has a National uh, Reserve Program. Yes, the National so, Estuarine you know, Research well, Reserve Program. The task program. force looked at all of those and um, evaluated them. Uh, we decided to uh, put the policy positions and the value uh, pluses and minuses down and let the management board make that final decision because they were going to be the ones to live with it. Which that's, that's interesting. And I get that. So you're going to create the board. These folks are going to have a Bay officer. They've got a new community to think about it. What was your take on the national estuary program? Uh, and for the audience out there, we can describe that a little bit, but what, uh, this is a federally designated, uh, uh region that, includes federal money and the ability to coordinate. There's a lot of coordinating activity in the NEP structure. Uh, what was your take? Did you like it? Or what didn't well, you like I, about I, it? I think the NEP program uh, in Florida, there's four of them designated okay. and participating. And they're all uh, now, um, you know, very well integrated into their Bay communities. Mm-hmm. And uh, we particularly uh, observed and held uh, discussions with the Tampa Bay group, which is going on almost 20 years, and Indian River, uh, which is an estuary lagoon uh, along the space coast uh, of Florida, where, where all yeah. of our, uh, you know, the moonshots and things Kennedy, take place. Cocoa Cape Beach. Right, yeah. yeah. And there, there they, the, both those areas had been, uh, experiencing the uh, algae blooms much more significantly than we had and the red tide on the west coast so we are uh, we, we took a lot of notes and uh, we think that the uh, estuarine program could well be part of the next steps for our water management board but um, interesting enough none of those uh, geographic estuaries had a national park Hmm. Uh, that occupied one third of the water body. Yeah, that's so, interesting. So, um, you know, we have a big national presence, and, and we're we, we we need to flush that out, as they say. Yeah, flush it out, and and make sure that we we make the right decision. If you know, we're uh, we have a significant congressional delegation in the county 
um, it could be that we need something that's more customized just for the uh, Biscayne Bay. Right. Uh, like like Congress has done in a couple instances, Long Island Sound, a few other places. Hmm. But, but there's time to make those yeah. decisions. Uh, there's plenty of resources available today uh, to address the issues we, we've got on the table. So the, and, and, and that's quite rightfully the role of the new water management board that y'all are recommending be created here uh those kinds of long-term structural or legislative created uh approaches to these complicated issues uh makes sense to me that that's that board would can if everybody signs up and it, it gets ratified and implemented uh it seems that would be one of the early topics where do we go from here you know, maybe over the next four or five years of exploring options and how to how to create the right governmental structure. But let's talk about let's talk about the bay a little bit. We're talking a lot about the administration of the bay. Um, as someone who's uh, lived in that region of the state and in Miami Dade County for twenty five years, uh, what's your personal experience with the condition of the bay and the and the quality of it? Well, the bay, uh, especially in the north part of the bay, where we lack the uh, saltwater flushing uh, that we get in the middle and lower uh, southern part of the bay, we've had die-off of seagrasses. And, of course, the seagrasses are a very important part of the marine environment from the standpoint of habitat uh, for for being part of the water quality cleansing operation that takes place. Yep. And we are uh, – that's one of the major focuses – finding out what's causing it, uh, and then we are actively um, working with our conservation partners to see about where it's feasible to do replantings uh, along uh, where the seagrasses um, traditionally were. The um, We have in the bay, because of, of its size, um, we have coral reefs, uh, nearshore reefs, and we've had loss of reefs uh, and their recreational value. and. One of the great things that's happening in Southeast Florida is probably recognized now around the world, and especially uh, to, in the Florida Keys, is there's now an active growing of uh, uh, harvesting of, of coral reefs so they can be replanted uh, back, back in their natural setting. Right. And our marine university institutes are involved. And so that's going on. Uh, the other thing I think that's happening uh along the shoreline is that the um, the tidal effects uh are are causing erosion uh and we have to uh reevaluate our our entire system of privately and publicly owned um uh, you know walls sea walls that were built over decades and evaluate how they should be uh, re- rebuilt uh, and hopefully or uh, modified protect. maybe yeah modified so and that's complicated because Very. the vast majority of them are privately owned yeah so how do you create incentives uh, it's one thing to pass a regulation but yeah. if the people don't have the funds to do it uh, so we're looking at um, possible ways to assist uh, we have a city of uh, Miami Beach which is over on the island uh, which of course fronts on the Atlantic Ocean, but on the bay side, this is a big problem, and they're trying to figure out ways to help the financing 
uh, the local yeah. uh, the private citizens to so let do me that ask, upgrade so of the seawall. Let's talk about why that's important. And uh, the when you have an armored shoreline or a bulkheaded shoreline around the bays, this is a big. This is a big issue in Texas bays and bays around the country. The armoring yep. of the shoreline completely changes the habitat dynamics along the edge. And uh, but in in the Biscayne Bay system. Uh, what is the implication of a highly armored or bulkheaded shoreline? What does it do to the bay? Well, I mean, it affects the habitat that can occur in front of it, you know, unless you do some right. design. Uh, and then, of course, a, another reason for the bulkheading was to provide boat access. So, you know, you, you yeah. had to have an, enough water uh, for the boat to be able to tie up uh, uh, or otherwise be, yeah. um, you know, associated with the waterfront dwelling. That was part of the, That's key. the vibe of living in, in near the water. So, but we, you know, we've tried to find the, the, uh, way we can, um, accommodate people's desire to have a boat, uh, the bulkhead, which, you know, traditionally the bulkheads were built to keep the land in yeah, right. because we were filling behind them. Yeah. Uh, now we're seeing them in both instances, but it's also to keep the sea out. So <laughs> we're having to uh, think about how to design them and how to frankly design them in a way that over decades they might be further improved as we experience more sea level rise. It's a it's a tough problem. Uh, we ask a lot of our coastal areas. It's one of the main things that Tyler and I focus on in Coastal News today is just looking at the vast list of things we want from our near shore environment on the land and in the water. And uh, we're a demanding group, us human beings, and we want boat yeah. access and we want great corals. We want to be able to fish right where we want. Uh, we also want to be able to economically develop it uh, without a lot of restraints. And these uh, desires of the community are uh, not often uh, uh, perfectly aligned. They can they can conflict, and uh, the work of the task force and the work of the new Biscayne Bay uh, Water Management Board is to sort of begin to sort out those demands. And can we uh, get closer? Are you optimistic about the institution that you're creating here? Are you optimistic about Miami-Dade's uh, future with respect to Biscayne Bay? I am, but uh, by my nature, you know, I'd have to be an optimist if I was going to work in the coastal area. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I really I, I appreciate that. Because I've been, I've been on or participated with so many boards that the ultimate ingredient is the actual personalities of those 11 people. Hmm. You know, do they come with that? special ingredient of listening to their fellow board members uh, of trying to find uh, collaborative uh, compromises and are they willing to um, be the the vehicle by which the funding and other measures are are pursued uh, there's plenty of evidence where that those kinds of things work uh, you know and to be honest there are situations where one or two members can be disruptive and then the whole group yeah. is sort of held back. Um, well, I really don't know how to solve that problem. I, I think than, we know how to solve other it. Tyler other knows. than pu public support no, to, to stay on track. Well, we, we, there is a way, and Tyler, Tyler will appreciate this, and uh, it's, it's Pat Riley. You know, you have a great... <laughs> 
this is about a team and uh can the role players on the team can the then the stars on the team work together can people sacrifice their own interests for the greater good i mean you're talking and i think you're quite right the success of this board is going to depend on the personal skills of and the leadership of the 11 people who are going to run the show and uh hell they ought to invite pat right what do you think buckingham you get pat riley in there to sit down with all of the guys and uh maybe walk them through how to be a great team well, he's got one more game on his mind. Yeah. <laughs> or two or three. <laughs> Hopefully but, more uh, than one. Yeah. I uh, guess tonight yeah, they're playing have, tonight. Uh, he's a, a real figure in our community uh, uh, in, in many other ways besides the uh, the sports team. But, yeah, I think there are people there uh, that are going to rise to the occasion. And, Good. you know, we have a very well virtually con- uh, connected uh set of um, young people who are the ones pressuring for change and they're you know they're on line with each other all the time they're they're the ones that found the first evidence of the fish kill on the bay uh, and quickly you know their videos were uh, uh, you know going around the community uh, nobody waited for an official report from any government hmm. wow they had evidence because it was tracking, uh, you know, through the social media world, and they were calling uh, and texting their elected officials and saying, "What are you going to do about this?" But right. the elected officials didn't even know it had happened. Wow! So I think that uh, attention to the, you know, what's going on in the world certainly is on the bay, but it, they realize this is a manifestation of the larger problems of global change that we're all dealing with. Certainly, we're all in the middle of the COVID thing. You know, it's a. Yep. Uh, if there's any hope, it's in that generation to use their ability to, uh, to share information so quickly yep. and to bring pressure for accountability on, act, on the next set of actions. Indeed. I think we are asking uh, the next generation to do a lot for us. Uh, Jim, if people are interested in following along with the fate of Biscayne Bay and the work of the new board, uh, how can they do that? Where would they go online? Uh, I would recommend right now, uh, I'm fairly confident the new board's going to have its own website. Um, But uh, failing that, uh, I think you can do, you can Google and, and you will probably find articles and uh, agenda items uh, that will keep you posted. Right. Um, we do have, we didn't talk about it a lot, but we have an overall countywide resilience strategy, which you can find at resilient305.com. Uh, okay. And that, and that is your office of resilience at Miami yeah, Dick. Right, right. Account. and it, and and the, one of the action items is Biscayne Bay. Okay, so we, great. You should be able to follow uh, along that way. Uh, I think eventually we'll we'll have uh, a, a much smoother uh, point of contact website and other ways uh, for the new board. But sure. right now it would be probably our resilience uh, support system. And probably MiamiDade.gov slash green, which is our overall environment um, website. Sounds uh, great. 
Well, I think people around the country will be uh, watching to see this latest experiment in intergovernmental management of a valued coastal asset. Uh, you're not the only folks on the American shoreline struggling with how to do this right. Uh, every experiment is an opportunity for everybody to learn. So I'm going to be very interested to see how the board operates and, and the efforts made uh, play out. And so I really thank you for taking the time to uh, to, to share the update from uh, Miami-Dade County. It's been my pleasure. Next time you're down, please, please uh, get contact and we'll do some saltwater distancing. <laughs> that would be absolutely fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Jim Murley. He is the Chief Resilience Officer from Miami-Dade County and was a member of the Biscayne Bay Task Force and part of the group of people who are working to establish the Biscayne Bay Water Management Board. And uh, really appreciate you taking us down the path of this beautiful part of the American shoreline. Absolutely fantastic, Jim. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you.